you could tell who the partiers are, the ones who'd refuse to sit down. They just want to keep talking, right? That's me. No, it's good to see all of you this morning. I, have, uh, I want to draw attention to one announcement in the bulletin, just in case you missed it. This Tuesday, 7 o'clock here, the elders are meeting, and we'd like to invite you to come. We, uh, uh, I, for one, love having people come and interact and watch what we do and talk to us about things. So if you're free on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, come join us. You know, another thing, I was out in the narthex in between services and watching people, kind of paying attention to what was happening. And I, um, it's an astounding thing how many people it takes to make church happen. Something as simple as, um, you know, all that happens up here. Somebody prints out the bulletin. Um, last service, that was empty. I have no idea how it got filled. Magic. And yet, there it is. It's filled. So, for all of you that are involved at some level behind the scenes, I just want to say thank you. I haven't been here long enough to know who all of you are, and uh, but it means a lot to me when I just walk in and there it is. Okay, question for you. Why did Jesus die? I, I know he died for my sins. I understand that. But I'm talking about, in a very real way, why did they kill him? Jealousy? Partly. Um, but, but the Pharisees had a lot of power. Jealousy wouldn't have been a big motivator. It wasn't because he claimed to be Messiah or God. There was a lot of uh, Messiah-type figures in the first century. So that wouldn't have been unusual. What did he do? He did something unique in the history of the world that incensed the Jewish leadership. And it wasn't claiming to be God. It was that plus something else. Why did he die? The last few weeks we've been talking about, uh, kind of been on a theme of a brave new world, that after the fall, the world became very dark. And God began the process of shining just a pin light, a little bit of light into this dark world. So we've talked about what role do we play as, uh, in our gender and ethnicity and all of those sorts of things. Um, and God just begins to shine a little bit of light into this dark world. When Jesus walks onto the scene, he flips a light switch. It's no longer a pin light. It's now this bright spotlight which does several things. Number one is it exposes the people that are truly seeking after God. Uh, I'm a Jesus follower. I hope you are too. And I'm searching to, to learn as much about God as I can in uh, my lifetime. And, uh, but it also exposes those who aren't interested. It exposes the underside of the fallen world, if you will, uh, the manipulation, the injustices, the the horrible ways we treat one another. But when Jesus flips the light switch on, everything becomes a lot clearer. And Jesus did that. The question is, how did he do it? So he walks into this world, and this is, this is the defining moment in redemptive history. So you've seen me up here kind of create this timeline. What happens in the Old Testament kind of sets the stage and helps define what happens in the New Testament, true spirituality. Remember that? So we talked about the Jewish temple. You can, you can rub your hand on the stones. You can hear the animals. You can smell them as they're being sacrificed. And then over here, we're told to be 
uh, a spiritual temple. That's what we are. What I haven't told you, but I'm sure you know it, is right smack in the middle, something crazy happened. Something unheard of. God visited his people in his son Jesus. And so what happened right here in the middle is there's no way we can overstate how significant this is, how countercultural, how revolutionary. Find the right words for it. It's powerful. What Jesus did here changed world history. Changed everything. I want to talk to you about that. Why? Why did they execute him? So today we're talking about celebrating Messiah, Jesus. And what happened? Why did he die? I'm going to argue that he announced that a new day had dawned. Something brand new. The kingdom was indeed here. It was breaking into our world and everything from now on would be different. Now, to put that in the context of the first century world, the gods that all the Romans served, everybody in the Roman Empire, the thought never crossed their mind that God would inbreak, the gods would inbreak into our world. We were always working to, uh, to figure out who they were. And the idea that God, the one true living God, would break into our world is just phenomenal. You know, I've traveled to India, I think most of you know, many times. And um, in Madurai, India, one of the largest Hindu temples in the nation is there. And uh, whenever I go, I go visit it. I just want to be up and close, personal with, with people that don't know Jesus like I do. And I want to capture a sense of who Jesus died for and what he must have thought. I don't, we don't have people pressing in on us in our culture. That's not a culturally acceptable thing, but in India it is. And so you, you, the people who are close enough, you smell the body odor and all of that. And so I wander through the temple, and if I have people with me, I take them. And there are these two stone, concrete, elephant gods uh, sitting there. Um, I was preaching, I was teaching at a pastor's conference one time, and they always give you a gift at the end. So I'm 300 pastors, and I'm opening up this package, and there's this nicely hand-carved elephant. It's in my office, actually. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, okay, is this a joke? You know, this is a very precious gift in India, but these are Christians. They just gave me a God. So I kind of gradually looked up and I see 300 pastors all snickering across the uh, audience. And I said, you gave me a God? And they said, yes, take our God. Take it to your country. (laughs) So I have it sitting in there. Well, they have these huge stone elephants. And, of course, under all religious systems except ours, you have to pay for the favor of the gods. And so you buy... You pay money and you get this little butter pallet, a little circle of butter. It's about inch wide or so. And then what you do is you throw it at the God. And if it sticks to the side, then that tells you that the gods will not be angry for the next year. And if it falls off, well, tough luck. So I quickly realized that if I was going to engage in that type of practice, I would not want to do it in the summer when it's 120 degrees. Because I don't think I could get the butter to stick when it's that hot. This is the world that these people live in. Very superstitious. This is the world that Jesus came. The thought of God in breaking into our world was unheard of. And yet here he is. The kingdom had come. He challenged the Pharisees to give up their commitment to the purity of Israel. They had spent a lot of years defining boundaries of who Israel was. And they had gone in the wrong direction. God said to Abraham 
I will bless the entire world through you. And then at the base, base of Mount Sinai, he says to this young nation that have just been led out of the Exodus, if you obey my commands fully, I will make you a kingdom of priests on behalf of the rest of the world. I will make you a holy nation so that all the world will want to come. Where else can a world that's desperately in need of being loved, where else can they find love? If they can't find it here, where else can they find it? Right? And what did the, what did the Jewish leadership do? They created all these boundaries, this law-keeping. You're not like us, so stay out. You don't wash your hands after you eat. Stay out. You, you uh, eat the wrong kind of food. Stay out. You're not allowed in the deepest parts of the temple. You have to go to the court of the Gentiles because you're a Gentile. Stay out. And so Jesus came and he began to challenge all that. And he began to challenge them to embrace an entirely new way of living, being the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Something they had not heard of. <clears throat> but how did he do it? And this is where he, we figure out how, why they killed him. He did it by attacking the national symbols of Israel. Every people group has uh, symbols. If you talk to a sociologist or an anthropologist, they'll tell you every people group define, has symbols that define the identity. So what are the symbols that we have that define us as Americans? What are they? Flag? We have a flag? What else? We have an eagle? What else? <clears throat> What's that? Football. <laughs> American football. Yeah, not European football. We have the right to uh, freedom of religion, the right to free speech, the right to bear arms. Don't these define us? What would happen if somebody came in and said, you know what, uh, you no longer have the right to freedom of religion. You're not going to have to follow the state religion. What would happen if they said, you no longer have the right to uh, free speech. In fact, we're going to take your flag and we're going to replace it with a different one. How would we feel? We would begin to feel like we were losing our identity, wouldn't we? Because those are symbols that define who we are as Americans. So what Jesus did is he began to attack and undermine and redefine the symbols that made up that made Israel what Israel was. Because they had corrupted those symbols and turned them into something they weren't intended to be used for. There's a whole bunch of them. Sabbath is one of them. We'll look at that one day. He redefined Sabbath. The priesthood is another one. The sacrificial system is another one. The temple is another one. Those are all symbols that defined Israel. And those people clung to those symbols like we do to ours because that's what made them Israel. We're going to look at one today, only one, and that's the temple system. Jesus attacked all the major symbols of Israel in the gospel, and he redefined them. But we're just going to look at one, the temple. Now, you have to understand the role of the temple in the first century world. And every, every nation had its temple system. And the temple system in, in Israel was the heart and soul of the, the nation. It was the place where everything happened. Because we, they believed, rightfully so, it was the home of the one true living God. This is where God made his abode. And so the nation could only worship at this temple. They couldn't worship anyplace else. So what do you do with as Israel began to grow and people kind of spread out through the various uh, times of being deported and, and you had uh, Israelites living around the world? 
Well, the law required that three times a year, all the men of Israel, and they often brought their families, usually they did, would all gather. That's what happened at Pentecost, by the way. That's why the, the city just swelled to probably over a million people, several million maybe, when uh, Pentecost happened. And so they were required to come and worship there, Deuteronomy 12. They could only worship at one place, so that was the temple. Three times a year they were required to come and worship. So for the average Israelite, they didn't conceive of the idea of, I can worship God wherever I am. That's not how they conceived of it. So the, the very famous and somewhat dated now praise psalm, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. We have turned that into a praise psalm about my praise and worship of God. But if you go read Psalm 42, which is where it came from, and put it in its context, you find something very different. Psalm 42 is written by one of the Jewish leaders, and he's, he's saying, I remember, O Lord, how I used to stand at the base of the temple steps, and I would take the throngs of people, the nation, up to worship you, to celebrate. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. How long do I have to wait? It wasn't a psalm. It wasn't a praise about me and God. It was, the, it was a Jewish leader who has been deported, who's crying out to God and saying, when are you going to return so we can all come together and worship? So the temple system was the heart and soul of Israel. It was the very core of the nation. Everything happened there. And so Jewish, uh, Jesus began to attack the temple system. <clears throat> the temple was designed to be the light of the world, the city set on a hill that would draw all nations to the one true living God. That was his purpose. We'll see some of that in just a moment. I'm going to read to you one verse out of Matthew 5. This is the um, um, Sermon on the Mount, the famous sermon, Matthew five thirteen. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The temple was on a mount. The city of Jerusalem was designed to be the city on the hill where everyone could see and all the nations would come and learn about the one true living God because they weren't going to find him in their nation. That was his purpose. The daily sacrificial system symbolized the unbroken presence of God. Every day they offered sacrifices. Every day. That's why you paid a tax to the temple to fund the sacrificial system. Every day. That symbolized unbroken presence of God. The uh, um, incense was burning constantly. That symbolized the unbroken presence of God. By the way, Paul says, you are a fragrant aroma. You have unbroken presence to the Lord. But the Jews did something very wrong with it. They turned it as a means of rejecting the nations. You're not like us. Stay out. Remember Jesus driving out the money changers? Remember that story? It's in Mark. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Mark 11. Mark 11. 
In this passage, he quotes Isaiah 56, but I want you to think about this part of the, the story. When people gathered from all around the world, they came to worship three times a year. If you were very poor, you could, you could just buy a turtle dove and offer it. If you didn't have one, you could buy it real cheap when you got to Jerusalem. Well, um, they had figured out that these people had come far, and so if they charged a little more, they could make a little more money. Because where were they going to go to buy their sacrifice? So these money changers are in the temple. One of the things that they're doing is they're extorting the poor, okay, the marginalized, those who couldn't afford very much. So here's what Jesus does. So and we're in Mark 11, starting in verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He was, the other gospels tell us, he was upset. By the way, this is a good example of what righteous anger looks like. When you get angry on behalf of someone else because they're being uh, taken advantage of, that's appropriate. Be enraged. It's okay. But look what he says here. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, this is Isaiah 56, My house will be called a house of prayer for who? All nations. There we have the heart and soul of the temple. It should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So they had used it as a means. They turned it into a means to keep people away. So what would happen if the temple were to be destroyed? What would happen? We're talking about the core of the nation. What would happen if someone tried to destroy the temple? What would they do to that person? Kill him. Jesus' deepest belief was that the time had come for God to judge the entire temple system. It had come to symbolize the injustices that characterized or represented the nation of Israel as a whole. And so God had, it was time to judge it. And he began to judge it. The poor were no longer cared for. This is not where you could come and find the true, one true living God. It was all about rituals. All the language in there about the yoke of the, the leadership was so heavy and the burden was heavy. Jesus weeps over the people many times because they, they, they can't see the freshness. There's no freshness. There's no life. There's no joy. The very thing that was created for. And so Jesus, his deepest belief was that God had, it was time for God to judge the entire temple system. This is the primary charge brought against Jesus, which ultimately condemned him. Move over two chapters to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 55. Verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. By the way, the very second that Jesus said, I am God in your midst, the temple system was no longer needed. That was the home of the one true God. So the very moment that he says that, I am God in your midst, they no longer needed the temple system. No wonder they executed him. All right, back to this. Verse 55. 
They were looking for some evidence, verse 55, against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many testified falsely against him. I love this. But their statements did not agree. Isn't that great? All Jesus has to do to avoid crucifixion is to be quiet. That's all he has to do. Praise God he wasn't. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony. We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days we'll build another not made with hands. I'm going to destroy this system and create another one. You no longer have the right to, to worship as you please. We're going to create a state system. That's in effect what he's saying. Something like that. I'm going to destroy your system and make something different. Verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is his testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. All he had to do was stay silent. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, verse 62, I am. There it is. Self-incrimination, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That all comes out of Daniel. We'll look at that someday. I am. That's all they needed. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. And uh, you know the rest of the story. He redefined what this temple system was all about. He believed the time had come for God's kingdom to dawn, and with it came a new agenda. Hebrews argues, the book of Hebrews argues that every time there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in ministry. Do you realize that in order for Jesus to become our high priest, he had to violate the Mosaic law? That is, if he wanted to be the king as well. Because what tribe did the king come from of Israel? What tribe? Judah. What tribe did the priest come from? Levi. You couldn't have a king priest. They'd set up, it was impossible. The moment Jesus said, I am the king and I am the priest, the Mosaic law came to an end. It was done. Well, he wrote the law, so he was allowed to do that. He also fulfilled it. And therefore, it was no longer needed. So he began to act in such a way as to introduce this new agenda. And what is this new agenda? It's that Jesus and his followers, that's you and I, we were to act in such a way that we would become the true spiritual temple. The physical temple was no longer needed. No wonder they killed him. No wonder they executed him. So he undermined this, this system, this temple system, and they killed him for it. But he didn't leave it there. He introduced something brand new to replace it in the upper room the night before he was betrayed. You know what that was? It's an entirely new paradigm, an entirely new way of thinking about community, an entirely new way of understanding the one true living God. We become the spiritual temple. The old temple's done. We learn from the old temple, and the old temple tells us what we should be like, 
This is where the poor were to be cared for. So when the world looks at us as a spiritual temple, do they see the poor being cared for? This was where the worship of the one true living God was to occur. When the world looks at us, do they see us praising God? This is where all the festivals occur, the parties. Festival of booths, eight days. The rabbis tell us eight days solid of music and dancing. This is where fun was supposed to happen. When the world looks at us as a spiritual temple, do they see us laughing and dancing and having fun? I love to have fun. We as a church should have a blast. It should be filled with joy. So he replaced this, the temple, with this right here. The temple represented the sacrificial meeting with the one true living God. When you came, you offered sacrifices. Jesus turned that on its head right here. He said, I will be your sacrifice. So instead of us offering sacrifices to a God, even though it's the one true God, the one true God says, I will sacrifice myself for you. And this represents that turning right there. The Last Supper represents the sacrificial meeting of Jesus with his people. God has broke into our world and he lives with us right now. God came down to us. No other religious system has that. The New Testament authors brought all these ideas together, the spiritual temple, living sacrifice, celebrating the death through communion. I mean, they just went crazy with this all throughout the rest of the New Testament. We'll, look at, we'll begin to look at some of that next week, actually. So Jesus chose the Passover to institute this new alternative way of thinking. By the way, we have a conundrum in the New Testament. In three of the Gospels, Jesus ate the Passover dinner on Thursday night, and then he was sacrificed on Friday. In one of the Gospels, they asked to take his body off the cross so that they can eat the Passover dinner. We'll talk about that one at Easter. Sorry to leave you such a long cliffhanger there. Passover linked the feasters, those who were eating the dinner, with the Exodus. Remember the story? They had to dress their clothes and get ready. They had to eat their food because they were going to be let out of, out of slavery to Egypt. And so every time Passover was celebrated, those that were eating the Passover were connecting themselves to the Exodus when God brought the Israelites out from bondage to sin. Well, God has finally liberated his people. Bondage to the Egyptians. He brings us out from bondage to sin. And the Exodus in the Old Testament becomes the picture, the picture that explains what Jesus does by bringing us out from slavery to sin. So the New Testament authors constantly refer back to the images, the symbols, the words, the concepts, the references, the verses that refer to the Exodus. This is the true Exodus right here. The moment you were granted freedom through redemption, you have experienced the Exodus. They're brought out from underneath slavery to sin. You know all those passages. So the Last Supper, um, it represents this whole idea. That's what the Exodus is all about. We've been freed from the bondage to sin. And the exile that started with the wanderings for 40 years have now been completed. That's what this tells us. We live with our risen Lord Savior. Right? Do you believe that? Do you believe that we, re- we live with Jesus day in and day out? No wonder they killed him. The temple wasn't needed anymore. 
The imagery of the rebuilt temple, the spiritual temple of which we are, it captures all this. Jesus would not rebuild the temple in its physical sense. Rather, he became the place and the means by which we experience God. You just have to go to the temple. And now we experience it through Jesus himself. We find relationship in him. He became the reality to which the sacrificial system pointed toward. We find atonement, forgiveness of sins in Jesus. The temple system is no longer needed. No wonder they killed him. They couldn't see beyond that. Remember I said when you flip the light switch on in the room, you see everything. Those who are truly seekers and are following after truth, trying to find it, who are followers of Jesus, saw the truth. And those who, uh, what does John say? He came into his own. His own did not receive him. But those who believed in his name. And the Pharisees and the leadership did not see it. And that's what the light revealed. They turned against him. They killed him. That's why he died. So, all of this was accomplished at the cross. That's what happened. So, when he, when he took the Passover meal and broke the bread and lifted the cup, it's just a few short hours before he dies. Wasn't it? Just a few short hours. And so what happens? What does that mean for us? When we talk about reaching this world for Christ, when we talk about the cross, the cross, we dare not talk about the cross simply as that which saves us. Yes, that did happen. But that's underselling what happened with the cross. That's minimizing what God did. When Jesus died on the cross, world history changed. Everything changed. He flipped the light switch on. All the injustices were brought to light. We now know, we can now begin to see more clearly how people are mistreated. We now know what it means to really care for the marginalized and the hurting, the poor, the widows. James says that's the heart of religion. We can see all that. And we become the spiritual temple, the city on the hill, the light to the world, where we say, come, come experience the one true living God. We're getting ready to go to the amphitheater, aren't we? What, do we ask, what, are, you, what are you asking God for at the amphitheater? I know what I'm asking God for. I'm asking God for at least one person to turn to Jesus. At least one. I'm asking God for a handful of Christians who have been disconnected from church to find information about this Messiah there and to find a reason to reconnect because this is life. Christianity is not a way of life. That's true of every other religion. This is life. I would love our church to have an influence in this county. And that, what a great way to start, the amphitheater. Last week, uh, Dr. Young talked about um, what it means to serve Jesus. We should be absolutely convinced that God has visited us in His Son, Jesus. And we have every reason not to be ashamed of the gospel. Every reason. So the cross didn't simply save us. It is the means by which God begins to redeem this world, this entire creation. All has changed in human history. The one true living God has visited His creation. He has demonstrated his love through sacrifice. He has liberated us from sin and brought us back from exile in the truest sense of that word. We should live as a congregation 
on behalf of the one true living God who lives amongst us right now. That's Jesus. So what happens? You know the communion story? In fact, it's probably so common that you, you kind of forget it somehow loses its significance and its impact. I know it does for me. I have to remind myself constantly. On the night that he was betrayed, First Corinthians tells us, at the supper, he, uh, at the Passover meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which was broken for you. And in the process of breaking his body, he created a new body, his death. Look around. Just take a moment. Look around. This is the body of Christ right here. Right here. This is the one moment in the week where we experience the risen Lord Jesus together in community. But he wasn't done there. He did something utterly profound. He took the cup and he said, this cup represents my shed blood. Shed for you. That's where atonement, forgiveness comes from. But it doesn't end there. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The Mosaic covenant is done away. We have a new covenant. What does this new covenant look like? It looks like we have a one true living God who lives with us and loves us passionately. But it also means that we enjoy each other in ways never seen before in the world. From now on, Ephesians tells us we can speak truth to one another. We can enjoy each other in fellowship. We can forgive one another. We can be reconciled to each other. We can sacrifice for one another. We can act as priests. We are a kingdom of priests, Peter tells us, on behalf of each other. What a privilege to be a priest on, your, on, on behalf of you. I mean, that's one of the greatest honors in all of my life, that I could serve you by being a priest, praying for you. What an honor that I could serve you by being a sacrifice, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I can sacrifice myself for you. That's the new covenant, something entirely new. And this is what this tells us right here. And it all happened at the cross. That's why Jesus said, every time you do this in my name, what? what? You proclaim my death. This is where it happens. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to come share communion. Let me give you a couple of thoughts. One is, uh, we're not going to all partake of the bread and the cup at the same time. I want you to come up, and I, I don't want you to come alone. Bring somebody. I want to invite all of you to come. Bring somebody with you. Spouse, friend, maybe somebody you've struggled with in a relationship that you really wish it wasn't there. Maybe a visitor that you don't know or somebody in the church that's been here a long time that you just simply don't know. Bring them and come up here and just celebrate together. Eat the bread and drink the cup. We celebrate what the risen Lord Jesus has done for us. You're going to find people, men and women up here to, uh, to talk to, to pray with. Maybe you have a need. Maybe you want some prayer for something. We love to pray. I love to pray for people. Maybe you want to just talk about Jesus. Maybe you don't know Jesus and you're on that journey. All right, I, it took me three years from the time I started the journey until I finally said, okay, I think I believe in him. <laughs> That's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. You want to talk about Jesus, come ask us. Maybe you have a praise, something to share that God has done. You just got to get it out and you got to tell somebody. I had some, somebody last week say, I just found out this morning, I have a grandchild coming. Ha, praise the Lord. Maybe you are hurting. And maybe we could help you. We'd love to help you as a church. So take the time to stop and share with somebody up here what the Lord is doing. So let me pray. Father, thank you for creating such a fantastic 
thing that we could do to remember your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for sacrificing your life for us. Lord, help us. Um, as the man in John prayed, Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to learn more about what it means to be uh, the light that shines out in the world in the city set on the hill. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus, because we believe in him. Amen.